The goal never has been to get transmission of COVID-19 down to zero. No. Of course it hasn't, Governor Abbott. It's to open up big business for you and your pals. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. In Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's Great AM 950. KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets, even during pandemics, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. All-around terrific swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today, whether you agree or not. Glad to have you here for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast, your stay-at-home radio companion. Yes, stay at home. Yes, please. Coming up uh, after a couple of weeks without him here, David Dayan of the American Prospect returns... You know, in addition to uh, doing his daily must-read unsanitized column, Desi Doyen, turns out he's also the magazine's executive editor. (laughs) Yes, he is. Every now and again, he has to, you know, actually prepare a print version for publication. Yes, he has to work. So he's not always available to just chit-chat with us. Uh, But uh, he is today, which is good, because he has a disturbing scoop on the U.S. Postal Service, which, as you know, is uh, now fighting for its life right now with Trump and the Republicans seemingly prepared to let the service die completely as soon as next month. Well, on that point, uh, David has a scoop for us, which uh, does not seem to be good news on that score. Uh, as difficult as it is for me to actually believe that they that the post office could actually go out of business. I'm having trouble wrapping my brain around that one. I'm having trouble wrapping my brain a lot of, around a lot of things, but that is yes, one of the I noticed. Ones. <laughs> Yes, it it seems impossible. It seems impossible. It does seem impossible. But, well, we'll talk to Dave about it. You know, I don't think that they will go out of business, but the Republicans and Trump may put them over a serious barrel that will not be good news for its workers. Uh, because, well, I guess they don't count. The postal workers, for some reason, they don't count as the forgotten men and women that Donald Trump used to pretend he gave a damn about when he was hoaxing his way 
into the U.S. presidency. Anyway, Dayan's disturbing scoop and other related news with him in a bit, but let's start with some slightly better news for the moment, and we'll try to finish today's show. Uh, as dark as it may get with David, I don't know. Uh, we'll try to finish with some uh, with some good news at the end today as well, if time allows. Anyway, uh, our opening good news after uh, air last night, a ruling came down from a federal judge in New York regarding New York's upcoming June 23 presidential primary, which the two Democratic members of the state board of elections effectively canceled last week. I think that was last week. Uh, Ernie Canning covered the news uh, from last night uh, today at Bradblog.com. Thanks to former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang, Bernie Sanders is now back on the presidential primary ballot in New York State. And so is Yang, at least for the moment. By way of a 30-page decision on Tuesday night, U.S. District Court Judge Annalisa Torres ordered the New York State Board of Elections to reinstate the Empire State's June 23 Democratic presidential primary and to include on the ballot those candidates who previously suspended their campaigns but did not elect to remove their names from the ballot. You know like Bernie Sanders, who had announced that he was suspending his campaign and endorsing Biden, but specifically was staying on the ballots in the rest of the primary states, specifically in hopes of gaining delegates so that he could use that leverage in moving both the Biden campaign and the uh, party's uh, party itself, the party platform at the convention this summer, if they have it, uh, to the uh, to the progressive left. And yet, last week, the board's uh, state board's two Democratic Party commissioners unilaterally removed from the ballot any of the candidates who had suspended their campaigns. And because that left only one candidate, Joe Biden, that effectively canceled the New York Democratic presidential primary. Now, uh, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, the state Democratic Party and the DNC all say they did not request the cancellation that was carried out by those two commissioners on the board. They did so, they say, as, uh, as a safety precaution in order to decrease polling place turnout during the coronavirus epidemic. That, even as Governor Cuomo had uh, previously ordered that all registered voters be mailed an absentee ballot application, so, in theory, that would keep people away from the polls uh, in and of itself. Now, Sanders and his supporters were outraged at the board's decision. And the next day, <clears throat> former uh, Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang, along with seven of his pledged delegates that he had uh, uh, already received, they filed a legal challenge to the New York board's decision, charging that their First Amendment free speech rights and 14th Amendment uh, rights as electors were being abridged, alleging that they would sustain irreparable harm. They sought a preliminary injunction that would reinstate the uh, scheduled primary and restore Yang's name to the ballot. Thirteen Bernie Sanders delegates uh, were subsequently added as plaintiff interveners expressly finding that plaintiffs had demonstrated a likelihood to prevail on the merits of the First Amendment argument, 
Canning uh, explains, and that New York voters, as well as candidates and delegates, prospective delegates, would suffer irreparable harm. The court found, quote, the removal of presidential contenders from the primary ballot not only deprived those candidates of the chance to garner votes for the Democratic Party's nomination, but also deprived their pledged delegates of the opportunity to run for a position where they could influence the party platform, vote on party governance issues, pressure the eventual nominee on matters of personnel or policy, and react to unexpected developments at the convention. Not sure which unexpected development she's talking about, but anything can happen these days, yeah, uh, she went on to say. And it deprived Democratic voters of the opportunity to elect delegates who could push their point of view in that forum. That is exactly uh, the point that uh, Ernie uh, Canning had made in another article in which he uh, argued that voting for Bernie Sanders in the upcoming primaries would actually help Joe Biden win because it would help to push the party to the left and that would help bring in Bernie Sanders supporters behind Joe Biden. He uh, Canning writes here that in this case, small d democracy has now prevailed, at least for now. Because shortly after the judge's ruling on Tuesday evening, the Wall Street Journal uh, reported that the New York State Board of Elections plans to appeal the decision reinstating the New York presidential primary. What is wrong with them? I have no idea. But something is wrong with them. Indeed. Anyway, good-ish news for now. In lesser encouraging COVID crisis-related news today... Desi Doyne's great home state of Texas is making news again. Always, oh, always good. Uh, Texas is putting to test the predictions of public health experts who warned about the repercussions of reopening the state at this time. So far, as of yesterday anyway, as reported by The Hill, 33,410 cases of COVID-19 have been reported in Texas with 911 deaths. 911. Mm. According that according to the uh, Texas Department of Health and Human Services, the state has tested 427,000 people, which seems like a lot of people, a lot of tests, but it's less than 2% of its population of 29 million people. Yep, less than half a million out of 29 million. After instituting a stay-at-home order on April 2, Texas Governor Greg Abbott allowed it to expire on April 30. So last week, all retail stores, restaurants, movie theaters, malls were all allowed to reopen on May 1, though uh, theoretically with limited capacity. But just one day earlier, one day before the doors were flung open for business in the Lone Star State, the state reported 50 new deaths, the most on a single day so far during this pandemic in the state of Texas. That, along with 1,033 new cases of COVID-19, that exceeded uh, that number exceeding 1,000 for the first time on a single day since early April. As we discussed at some length on, on yesterday's broadcast, other than in the New York metro area where this, the rate of infection and death has sort of plateaued, it's slowly on a downward-ish slope. Other than there, the rate of infections and death is pretty much on the rise. It is increasing everywhere else, even as mostly Republican governors now are opening things up for business again, opening their states up. 
as Trump is encouraging them to do so. And in this case, in Texas, they did so on a day after the largest number of deaths that the state had ever seen on a single day during the crisis. On May 3, two days after reopening, Dallas County reported uh, 234 new cases in the county alone. That's its highest total to date, according to Dallas County News. So just two days after reopening the state, Dallas County has its worst outbreak in a single day. Now, was that because they suddenly started testing more? Apparently not. Dallas County Judge Clay Jenkins told the Dallas Morning News that there had not been any significant increases in testing capacity. That week, last week, coronavirus cases in the state spiked with more than 7,000 new cases that week compared to about 5,700 cases the week before. Other states have also seen spikes in new cases and deaths as they reopen. As predicted, in Georgia, more than a thousand new coronavirus cases were diagnosed on the day before that state reopened and the day that the state at home order expired. Well, in Texas, while you know we could have told you this and in fact did, as I recall, the state's governor, Greg Abbott, also could have told you this, but he didn't. He could have told you because he knew it was going to happen, but he kept it secret, apparently. During a private call with other lawmakers on Friday, according to the Daily Beast, Texas Governor Abbott admitted that every scientific and medical report shows state reopenings lead to an increase in novel coronavirus cases. That even as he publicly announced plans the same week to end an executive stay-at-home order in the state. The audio was recorded by somebody else on the call, and a clip of it was sent to the Daily Beast. State, uh, the state political site Quorum Report noted that Abbott's public statements so far have largely only mentioned that Texas may see an increase in the numbers due to increased testing capacity rather than increased contact. Mm. That's uh, decidedly different from what he said in private that, uh, yes, reopening can and could cause a spike in cases. This from audio uh, from the audio recording from last Friday's call appeared to show a much more direct and certain understanding by the governor of those risks. Here's some of that call from Texas Governor Greg Abbott. Uh, that can continue to contain the spread 
Really? Simply not uh, either scientifically or mathematically possible uh, to get to zero uh, in the transmission rate, whether it be for COVID, whether it be for the regular flu, uh, whether it be for uh, any type of, of, of infectious disease. Okay, so Governor Greg Abbott there speaking privately to lawmakers, conceding that, yeah, you know what, more people are going to get uh, COVID and more people are going to die. But hey, you know, we got to get the we got to get the country back open here. We got to get the state back open for business. Sorry. Now, of course, publicly he was saying that, well, the numbers will go up, but that's only because we're increasing testing. Which is not true, which is not what he was saying in private. That's what he was telling folks in Texas. Your family, Desi Doyen, that's what he was telling them publicly in the state of Texas. I know, and I cannot tell you how much it infuriates me. Their words do not express how much it infuriates me that Republicans in Texas are willing to sacrifice my family on the altar of money. I figured you wouldn't be happy about it. Uh, Neither is the Texas Democratic Party Executive Director Manny Garcia. He uh, lambasted the uh, Abbott's decision to reopen knowing the risks. He said uh, Republicans are not here to protect you or your family. Governor Abbott finally admitted that prematurely opening Texas is going to lead to more cases and more deaths. Republicans, he said, are putting our families' lives at risks so their billionaire donors can get richer. What Texas Republicans say in public yet again does not match what they say in private. He knew deaths would happen by reopening Texas, and now he needs to own it, said Garcia. Yes, of course they know, and they don't care. And I sure hope that folks in Texas are paying attention. They seem to be. The last couple of polls we showed, we, we've had out of Texas showed that uh, Joe Biden is either tied or leading Donald Trump in the state of Texas. It is time to flip that state blue and save a few thousand million lives down there in Texas. Yes. Of course, Abbott's the har- hardly the only uh, Republican right now willing to see his own constituents die on the altar of a big business economy. David Dayan has been writing about exactly that of late, as well as on some troubling news for the U.S. Post Office. Troubling news that is worse than the troubling news that you probably already likely know about the U.S. Postal Service. David Dayan joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. The broadcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to help us continue to do over your public airwaves what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thank you. Say live and let die. Live and let die. It's great when that, uh, whoever that was who played this, uh, who played Live and Let Die when Donald Trump was touring that mask factory on Tuesday suddenly over the loudspeaker. Brilliant. Anyway, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. If you want to know what is happening, particularly with the federal government's bailout and emergency COVID-19 relief schemes and other related disasters, The man to keep an eye on each morning is David Dayan and his daily unsanitized column and newsletter at the American Prospect or Prospect.org. You will uh, generally get a heads up on whatever everyone else in the media will be talking about in a day or three. 
But Dayan also offers the added advantage of usually being right about it long before many in the corporate media even notice the problem, much less go on to get it all wrong when they finally do notice it and cover it. It is for that reason that we have been checking in regularly with Mr. Dan here on the broadcast since the beginning of the coronavirus crisis. It has now been a couple weeks, however, since he's been able to uh, check in with us on the show. But he's got yet another troubling scoop about the U.S. Postal Service today, or at least what may be some troubling and, and very smartly read tea leaves, I think, suggesting some disturbing development developments in the days ahead for the post office at a time when, as we have discussed previously, the USPS has said that if they do not get a pretty immediate cash infusion somehow from the federal government, they may have to shut their doors entirely as early as June. That, as other corporations and businesses have received huge bailouts, but the Postal Service has yet to receive anything, even though they are otherwise surviving only on, um, on, on the stamps that you buy. They take zero taxpayer dollars, the U.S. Postal Service. And, of course, all of this is happening at a time when pretty much the entire nation will be counting on the Postal Service to allow Americans to somehow vote safely in about 20 upcoming primary elections and in all 50 states this November when vote by mail in the middle of an unprecedented global pandemic crisis is going to be crucial to the survival of this nation and its democracy, not to put too fine a point on it. Joining us now once again is David Dayan, investigative financial journalist and the executive editor of the American Prospect, as well as the author of 2016's Chain of Title, focusing on the 2008 mortgage crisis and its disastrous bailouts amid the Great Recession, as well as the upcoming monopolized life in the age of corporate power to be published in June and maybe just maybe delivered to your home by a U.S. Postal Service worker if we're all lucky. Welcome back to the broadcast, Mr. Dayan. Thank you, Brad. Uh, we need to uh, talk Postal Service here shortly, uh, but as you haven't been on uh, for a while, I have a couple of other items uh, from some of your recent unsanitized uh, columns that I need to touch base on first. You covered in in the column yesterday what we also reported on here uh, in quite a bit of detail uh, yesterday regarding this insanity to pre prematurely rush to just open reopen everything, even as the uh, coronavirus infections and death rate are incre increasing, not decreasing across the country, particularly in rural areas as the administration and a bunch of Republican governors out there essentially are pretending, I guess convincingly for many, that, uh, you know, oh, we beat this thing. It's time to open for business again. You, however, David, cut to the bone on the matter in a way that I don't know if I did on this show with your closing sentence. I want to read it and get your thoughts. Quote, anyone working in the federal government on pandemic response right now who doesn't want to be known historically as a mass murderer should probably resign. Ouch. Uh, <laughs> do you... Uh, sometimes, I, sometimes I know how to turn a phrase. Yeah, uh, I think you do. Uh, do. Do you believe that this matter will ultimately uh, seen as starkly as that, David? I mean, I obviously certainly hope not, and I think the one saving grace is that uh, Americans as individuals are not as stupid as the guy in the White House. 
<laughs> and uh, they're they're not as inclined to go out and and get a, a Wendy's chili mm-hmm. and risk their lives uh, on a daily basis, even if the uh, the the locality in which they live is quote unquote reopened. Mm-hmm. So uh, what we're seeing is is if you look at polls, seventy five eighty percent of people are still you know fearing day to day contact and and thinking that the the the, the country should be shut down. But I, I mean, what Trump is doing is basically giving up, mm-hmm. which is you know. If you look at his history, mm-hmm. uh, whether through bankruptcies or through cutting and running when mm-hmm. the going gets tough, he's pretty much given up all his life. That that that's the way that he has has moved through his personal business history. Well, he, give, he gives up so, and then he moves on with like a, a Jedi mind trick that uh, you know the old "I meant to do that" excuse. Right. Everything's fine. This is perfect. We did it. We nailed it. We finished it. Now we're moving on. So, you know, when, the, when, when something can't be fixed easily, mm-hmm. he says it can't be done. And uh, he says by his actions, he mm-hmm. won't say that you know, by, uh, verbally. But, right. Uh, that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, you know, people are going to get killed. Uh, we we, we got we to move forward. Time to go. <laughs> uh, so, you know, this is, this is a prescription for tens of thousands of people unnecessarily dying. And, and we should be really clear about that. Uh, and I have been trying to be uh, that clear about it because I agree with you. I think this is really bad and where we're headed is awful and you got a whole bunch of people pretending otherwise. But this is one thing that he cannot pretend his way out of, it seems to me, because the numbers... The numbers are going to be what the numbers are. The death rate's going to go up and everything else. Do you expect that we will actually see any resignations in this particular administration uh, along the lines that you are suggesting anytime soon? I mean, actually, what we're about to talk about with the Postal Service mm-hmm. is about a resignation. Mm. <laughs> okay. So uh, we, we, can, we can talk about that for a different reason, but... Um, you know, we've seen a couple of whistleblowers say that they, they couldn't continue and they've resigned and, and they've come forward to talk about, you know, what Jerry Kushner and the, uh, the sleepy-eyed boys are doing with uh, right. moving uh, this protective equipment around the country and, and bumbling along. Uh, I, I think there, there's this push and pull where people within the government think, well, if I leave, then someone terrible is going to mm-hmm. take my place and, and you know, then... Uh, at least I have an opportunity to maybe change things a little bit for the better now. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of feel that ship has sailed. The coronavirus task force is going to be uh, either disbanded or, or reduced in its uh, imports in some manner or another. And, uh, you know, the, the administration has pretty clearly signaled that they're done with pandemic response. They're, they're over it. Yeah. And, uh, you know... What, what are you going to impact if you're still there? Well, I mean, you're right, although, you know, it would be nice to see a, 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 a Deborah Burks or Anthony Fauci saying, I'm resigning because of this, because we're about to see a mass murder, essentially. Um, I think that would have a huge impact, and yeah. probably a bigger impact than if they just kept at it and tried to chisel out a slightly better response yeah. for the next month. 
But we ain't seeing it. Okay, uh, before we get to that Postal uh, Service resignation, you've also been covering the various bailout mechanisms uh, put in place by Congress over the past couple of months, uh, including what they uh, including what they haven't bailed out and how Democrats have given away most, if not all, of their leverage to do so, which, by the way, also brings us to the Postal Service, but we're not there quite yet. Uh, you also mentioned uh, on this uh, point in the American, uh, uh, that the American prospect itself which I can tell you firsthand, as uh, as can Desi, uh, we have had a hell of a time dealing with this so-called Paycheck Protection Program. Apparently, the American Prospect had a difficult time as well. But you were able to succeed, which is no small feat. It is a simple program for small businesses to help them stay alive for a couple months, but it is a nightmarish process, at least as we have found, to actually get approval for one of these so-called forgivable loans. Uh, does that match your experience at the prospect in getting approval, as, as you discussed uh, in a recent unsanitized column? Well, it's a difficult process, and, and what I would say is that you know I'm fortunate in that we have a business department, and when mm-hmm. I say business department, I mean a part-time accountant right. uh, who, who really uh, handled that process along with our publisher, and I, I was not involved. Mm-hmm. And considering what I've written about the program, uh, you know, the fact that we have editorial independence, mm-hmm. I think, is a very good thing, and yep. that's going to continue. So, um, you know, uh, my understanding is we went through five different potential financial institutions to mm-hmm. try to get this, yeah. uh, both ba- two banks that we work with, uh, our payroll company, uh, and two other vendors that we have worked with in the past, and it was actually one of those vendors, PayPal, who, uh, you know, we used to help collect donations. Mm-hmm that actually we were successful in, uh, uh, it was PayPal that actually got the loan for us. Um, and, you know, each entity required slightly different levels of paperwork. Um, there were different things that, that they asked for. Uh, there's obviously not a lot of uniformity with the program. Right. Um, and the biggest problem, that really the only, the main problem with the program is that it's not big enough. I right. mean, uh, you know, the... The first round was about $350, or $350 billion, right. I should say. And uh, a study that I saw showed that about 5.7% of, small, of U.S. small businesses were actually able to receive one of those loans, part of that $350 billion kitty. Mm-hmm. This second round is set at about $310 billion. So if you look at this, by the end of this, a massive amount of money, mm-hmm. but you're talking about one in ten businesses yep. that are going to be able to re- uh, receive it. And, and obviously, that does not match the demand for the program. Uh, Bloomberg came out today with a, a, a report that half of all small businesses uh, may, may go under within the next six months. Mm. Um, this program isn't really even designed to keep businesses afloat, really. It's, it's designed to keep payrolls. Uh, you know, it, you you have to pay at least seventy five percent of the loan that you receive mm-hmm. in payroll mm-hmm. in order for it to be forgiven, and uh, this is really a pass through from businesses to individual workers, and that's a good thing to keep them employed for eight weeks. But at the same time, if you're in a high rent area, mm-hmm. if you pay a lot of uh, you know uh, extra off salary costs, mm-hmm. uh, this isn't going to help you. Right. Nobody really expects that eight weeks 
from the time you got that loan, which could have been last month, that everything's going to be back to normal and, and you're going to be able to sustain your business. Uh, it, it's just not enough. Yeah. It, it's, and and that's that's really the, the, the point. If, if you're able to get one of them, and, and the, the yeah. hurdles that we've run into are, are largely just you know bureaucratic. Like you say, all kinds of different banks, they all have different requirements, things they're asking for. And uh, you know nobody has actually refused us, said, oh, you don't deserve to have this. They've just sort of declined it for reasons that are unclear. And they say, well, try again, reapply at the same bank over and over again. It's mm-hmm. a mess. Yeah. Um, you wrote a book largely focused on the disastrous bailout during the uh, uh, 2008 Great Recession in the wake of the mortgage crisis. Uh, how does the progress so far of this emergency bailout process, not just the PPP program, but all of the various programs, uh, how does that compare to what we saw in 2008? Is it better? Is it worse? Has the federal government learned any, you know, and enacted any lessons from that? Or is it still too early in the process to make that call? Well, I think there are a lot of parallels. Um, and the biggest parallel being the Federal Reserve has the ability to open a spigot and immediately have large corporations, and particularly Wall Street, uh, showered with cash. And uh, that's a mechanism that we use sort of in the ordinary function of government. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the Fed has to, you know, keep, keep money flowing in order for uh, programs to be paid and, and, and treasury bonds to be, uh, uh, to be sold. And so there's a lot of interconnection between the financial system and the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we now uh, understand fully is that there's barely any interconnection between the government and ordinary people on Main Street. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing is that individuals trying to get a $1,200 stimulus check are struggling uh, to to actually receive it, uh, and they have to fend off private debt collectors in order to keep it. Mm -hmm. Um, We're seeing that uh, state unemployment systems are woefully unequipped to get people's claims processed. We're seeing that the small business program, as you discussed, is is rife with uh, frustrations. But big businesses, they can take that money. <laughs> That's no problem. Yeah. There, there's the, the, the channel is wide open when you're talking about the largest corporations and the largest banks in America. And, and more to the point, it's only that the Fed has to announce these programs. They don't even have to really give the money out in order for... The investor class to be protected. How, long, what does that mean? How so? Well, as long as the Fed says we're going to backstop you, mm-hmm. whatever it takes, we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just look at the results that we've seen in the last month and a half. So on March 23rd, the day before the CARES Act deal was struck, mm-hmm. the stock market was at 18,000, the Dow Jones Industrial mm-hmm. Average. By the end of April, it was at 24,000. So that's a 33% increase Mm. that protects the 10% of people who own 84% of the stocks, the investor class. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you look at the Fed made an announcement uh, on April 9th that said, we are going to backstop the corporate bond market. So all these corporations who are borrowing gobs of cash, we're going to back up that entire market. And uh, you can look at stocks 
that, that track that market, and you see this chasm followed by a bounce back right to where they were mm. before this crisis even happened. You uh, look at a company like Carnival Cruises, mm-hmm. which was ready to go to the, uh, the effectively financial loan sharks to mm-hmm. try to borrow money to survive, and then the Fed makes this announcement, and Carnival says, oh, we, we found $6 billion from investors, mm. because the investors know, well, if we get into trouble, even if, even if we're sinking money into a cruise line, which is the dumbest thing you can do right now, right. the Fed's going to bail us out, right. so we're going to do it. Uh, the same with Boeing, who doesn't even really know how to make planes that stay in the sky. <laughs> They're, they last week announced, that they don't need any direct bailout from the Federal Reserve because they got $25 billion in bonds they were able to sell uh, last week. And that's, again, a backdoor bailout because the Federal Reserve guaranteed the corporate bond market. Mm. And so all of these things, the Fed, all they have to do is open their mouths, Mm -hmm. and they generate trillions of dollars for all these large corporations and uh, and investors and, and the ordinary person just doesn't have that kind of juice. Yeah, I was going to say, and yet there is no mechanism for actual, you know, Americans. I guess if corporations are people, maybe we need to have a campaign uh, to support the idea that people are people and see if that ends up bringing any uh, uh, help to the average uh, American. So along those lines, uh, and speaking of bailouts, uh, the U.S. Postal Service says they desperately need one. There's been a plummet of mailed letters during the COVID crisis. America now desperately needs the Postal Service for, if nothing else, ensuring that Americans can vote safely uh, by mail in this year's critical general election and primaries, and yet Republicans have not agreed to any bailout for the USPS. Democrats have pretty much given up their leverage, it seems to me, and you've been writing as much uh, at uh, the prospect about that, to, to get you know some kind of a, a, a relief package for the post office. Uh, and now you report today what could be some very troubling news along all of these lines. Uh, let me uh, let you explain the, uh, well, I think the dis- dis- disturbing scoop you've got today. So uh, let's let's describe what's going on with the post office. So, as you said, the postal service is completely self-sufficient. Um, however, they have a line of credit with the Treasury Department that mm-hmm. they are able to draw on. That's not money that's given to them. That's that's a loan. Mm-hmm. That's that's a line of credit that they're able to tap that they need to pay back in a reasonable amount of time. So, uh, right now they're at the limit of that line of credit. And this is why they've said we need $25 billion or we need whatever amount of money that we need mm-hmm. uh, immediately or else we're, we're going to have problems. So in the CARES Act, the, the, the bill that was passed in March, mm-hmm. uh, there was an extension of that line of credit for another $10 billion. Uh, the Postal Service has not formally asked for that money. Mm-hmm. However, the Treasury Department, there have been discussions, and the Treasury Department, which offers that line of credit, has signaled that they will use that to make major policy changes. In other words, you want that $10 billion? Well, uh, you're going to have to pay the piper. You're going to have to uh, uh, bust your unions. You're going to have to get some givebacks on, on, on pay and benefits and things like that. Uh, you're going to have to do what we want in terms of package delivery, specifically 
uh, making sure Amazon pays through the nose. This is the thing that, that Donald Trump is obsessed mm-hmm. with that, because he hates Jeff Bezos. Right. Um, and uh, you're going to have to institute a bunch of policy changes uh, uh, and, and give us uh, some decision-making authority on personnel, including the Postmaster General, which is an open position right now. And, and that's that, sort of the CEO of the Postal Service. And, and that's just, that part is just to get the, 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 loans, the loans, essentially, that they have that's to pay right. back. So if I uh, max out my credit card, it's got a $10,000 limit. I call the bank. I say, hey, can you extend that to $20,000? They say, sure, we're happy to do that. However, you yeah. need to do this and that and this and that in order for us to do it. Now, that's right. And it's, it's it's really an imposition into the authority of the yeah. Postal Service, which is an independent entity that uh, is self-sufficient, as you say, in terms of it does not mm-hmm. take federal dollars uh, in grants uh, uh, to, to do its business. Did Congress include any of these conditions when they no. passed this uh, approval for $10 billion? Uh, no. Uh, no. They just said that your line of credit is extended, uh-huh. and the Treasury is... is taking advantage of that Mm -hmm. uh, by trying to enforce certain conditions. And uh, so what I learned is, uh, and actually this was was Mm -hmm. made public on Monday, that uh, the David Williams, Mm -hmm. who is the vice chair of the Postal Service Board of Governors, which is kind of like the board of directors Mm -hmm. for the Postal Service, he resigned. He was the sort of lead uh, let's say Democratic member. I don't think he's an actual Democrat, but mm-hmm. he was he was named by the Democrats. This is one of these boards where you have certain number of Republicans, certain mm-hmm. number of Democrats, depending on who is in the White House. Right. Um, so he was the lead Democrat. He, he was he was the lead Democratic choice mm-hmm. uh, and the vice chair of the the Board of Governors. And he resigned. And what I've been told is that he resigned because uh, of this pressure that Treasury was putting on the Postal Service to essentially micromanage their business. Uh, And David Williams is an interesting figure. He was the Inspector General of the Postal Service for a while. Mm -hmm. He wrote in 2014 a white paper arguing that the Postal Service needed to return to the tradition of postal banking, Mm -hmm. uh, allowing everyone in America to get a bank account at the Postal Service that they could use uh, to promote financial inclusion, to keep them away from, from uh, de- the, the mm-hmm. payday loan industry, mm-hmm. cash, check cashing stores and things like this, uh, and, uh, and, and help stabilize postal revenues besides. Um, so, you know, this, this was really kind of a, a, a positive step when he was brought in mm-hmm. as part of the governing body of the Postal Service, but now he's essentially resigning in protest that Treasury is trying to essentially take over the Postal Service. So this is a really bad sign. Do we know why he did he uh, make any statement upon his uh, resignation? We only know this because the Postal Regulatory Commission had to file a report, a disclosure, with the Securities and Exchange Commission that said that this vice chair resigned effective April 30th. Uh, I tried to get in touch with Williams. He uh, uh, did not... Uh, return that request, mm-hmm. uh, but I have heard from other sources that uh, the, this was a protest resignation, and uh, uh, you know certainly members of Congress and uh, some of the postal unions are 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 pretty dismayed by this turn of events. You called uh, you you quote uh, Congressman Bill Pascrell, a uh, Democrat from New Jersey, as saying uh, that uh, David Williams' sudden departure is quote 
an ominous storm cloud over the head of our Postal Service. So what you're reporting and what he seems to be suggesting here is that there is strong arming going on and uh, David Williams is against it, but is now resigning in order to call attention to it or because he they're they are being pressured and essentially they are going to vote in favor the the, the board of yeah, governors I mean, to, to go for this he's outvoted right i mm-hmm. mean it's 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 he, he doesn't have a whole lot of, uh-huh. of wherewithal and so the resignation is either to as you say call attention to it or just say i'm not going to participate in the destruction of this agency to which i hold dear um and so d- it's unclear until he comes out and actually speaks but uh-huh. um I think I think we certainly see a lot of smoke here. And so uh, the concern is, and and you highlighted a few of them, but I want to underscore it. You're saying that the administration is essentially saying, if you want this 10 billion uh, approval to borrow 10 million, you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z, and X, Y, and Z could include busting your unions, busting the postal union, raising uh, uh, postal rates uh, on on companies that we hate, Amazon, because Donald Trump hates Amazon. Uh, and, and those are the conditions that you think that they're actually presenting them with at this time? Well, that's been reported uh-huh. by the Washington Post that those are among the conditions that uh, Treasury is looking for. And, and Donald Trump has been very explicit about some of this stuff, right? Yep. He's, he's said that, that uh, we need to increase package delivery rates by four, you know, 400%. Mm-hmm. You need to quadruple package delivery rates or the Postal Service isn't getting a dime. Uh, you know, there are sort of two things going on here. There's, there's the request that the Postal Service has made for a, you know, what you would call a bailout, mm-hmm. like a $25 billion uh, uh, pot of money. Uh, and there's this loan, that this, this line of credit that the Treasury has that has been a little less reported on. So, you know, Trump is talking about trying to use the, the, the bailout as leverage, mm-hmm. but it turns out Treasury can use the bailout as, or can use the line of credit as leverage already. This is all, of course, very disturbing, and we'll point folks, as usual, over to your column on this. Um, uh, but you mentioned, uh, well, two, th- two points I want to get to here as I'm running out of time. Uh, one, you mentioned postal banking uh, and the fact that that could save the post office right now. Um, but uh, would that, A, require approval of Congress in order to do that? Or can the post office just set that up on its own if they want? you know, as a, as a bit of a moneymaker for themselves. And also, you, you mentioned in your column today uh, the return of postal banking. Have we ever had postal banking in the U.S. previously? Yes, we did. Uh, from really? 1911 to 1967, Really, there was a postal uh, savings account system in the United States. Uh, at its height, uh, right after World War II, it had 3 million uh, people who uh, had accounts at the post office. Um, it really, before the Depression, was kind of the only bank that actually offered protection for your money. <laughs> you know, before the FDIC, oh, okay. uh, the, the, the postal bank the savings system was the only bank that had sort of the full faith and credit of the United States government behind it. What uh, happened to that? Who killed that? Well, uh, the, the FDIC didn't kill it. It, uh-huh. it extended it to all banks. So, but I mean, who that, killed the postal service, uh, the, the oh, postal well, banking in, 60, in the sixties? Be, because of the fact that uh-huh. it lost its comp- 
competitive advantage with the uh, advent of the SEIC, uh-huh. as well as there was a limitation on the interest that the uh, postal savings system was allowed to offer. Ah. And as interest rates went up in the traditional bank account system, mm-hmm. You know, but, you know, you have to sort of think back to a time when you would actually get interest on your money from right. the bank. Yeah. But there was this time, <laughs> and uh, uh, once the private banking system was allowed to offer much more money, uh-huh. the, uh, the, the postal savings system waned. Gotcha. Uh, and, and ultimately it was killed in 1967 just as a cost saving. Well, and now there's no, uh, you get like nothing, you know, 0.02, uh, yeah, you know, uh, exactly. interest. But, but there what, was a time when you would get actually a fair bit of money. Which for, is, uh, for yeah, there. no, I and I remember that time. Uh, I, I am that old, but I did <laughs> not remember uh, that there was postal banking. So to bring yeah. that back, is that something that the, couldn't the post office just do that if they wanted to? Or, could or to if the extent. Board of Governors allowed them to, I guess. To an extent, the Board of Governors could institute it. In fact, in uh, one of the postal unions, the American uh, Postal Workers Union contract actually requires the Postal Service to submit pilot programs Uh on postal banking, uh, which they have not done, despite the fact that the contract was signed, I believe, three years ago. Uh, They've just abdicated this responsibility uh, that they agreed to in a contract. Mm. Um, so uh, the, obviously what that signals is that the, the former Postmaster General and the Board of Governors, as it was constituted, uh, was reluctant to go forward with this system. Uh, I think, uh, you know, for the duration of, of the Trump administration, that's mm-hmm. going to be the case. But uh, there is no doubt that uh, uh, based off the current financial services that the Postal Service offers, in namely money orders, mm-hmm. like postal money orders and things like that, uh, they could certainly segue into certain types of financial services right now if they wanted. And think about this. You know, if everybody had an account at the Postal Service, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been so hard to give out $1,200 checks. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, uh, this, is, this is not just sort of a nice-to-have, yeah. but in a case of catastrophe, when you need to speed relief to people and financial inclusion and access to the banking system is an impediment, it's actually more of a must-have. Yeah, you wouldn't have to go through all of this uh, nonsense, this confusion about, oh, if you had a direct deposit on file right. with the IRS, oh, if you have... Yeah, that would have simplified everything. But, of course, that would have helped, you know, regular American individuals. And apparently we're only concerned with corporations surviving in this country. I only got about 30 seconds left here, uh, David, uh, which is not nearly enough. But the problem with the Postal um, Service and and all of these fights is that uh, you have been uh, reporting that the Democrats have, by and large, given up all of their leverage in getting this from Republicans in any kind of a deal. It seems to me that nothing is currently going on. The Republican Senate is approving judges. Uh, Chuck Schumer is whining about that, but not showing up and saying, we demand X, Y, Z, and if Republicans don't give it to us, they're killing Americans or killing business. If the script was flipped, you know that Republicans would be doing that. Am I missing something here? It seems like the Democrats have got no game. Well, they now have no hand. I mean, at least before when Republicans really needed uh, or, or had something they really wanted, mm-hmm. like a, a corporate bailout, mm-hmm. 
then there was a, a hand to play. Right. Now, Republicans do want one more thing. They want total blanket liability shield mm-hmm. for corporations where workers or customers contract COVID-19. Mm-hmm. That's what they want. Right. A, a, a almost unilateral immunity for the corporate sector. That's, you know, it's come to this. Right. And of so course. if if Democrats are going to get something decent out of the next bill, they might have to give something like that up. And the reason why it's come to that is because they really did not, I believe, uh, do the job that was necessary when Republicans had concessions that they were going to need to make. So, unfortunately, we're in this situation. And, uh, you know, Pelosi hasn't really seen enough criticism for that. <sighs> there, as usual, giving it all away. Uh, oh, Desi is insisting that I ask you, David, is there anything that uh, Americans, regular Americans can do to help save the Postal Service right now to somehow move this forward? Well, I mean, uh, you can always buy a stamp, right? Uh, but... Uh, but really, it, that helps. <laughs> and I mean, it does help. Yeah. It does help, and yeah. I think I think people should do it. Uh, it's it's always just like any small business. If you can prepay some of the the work that you're, mm-hmm. you're or some of the business you're going to send their way anyway, uh, this is the time when they actually need it. You know, that's that's sort of an individual level mm-hmm. and a policy level. I mean, we just need Congress to to step in and make something happen. And so, you know, it's the usual calling your representative. And particularly asking your representative to put some pressure on the House and Senate leadership among Democrats, uh, uh, first of all, to, to actually get a remote voting system in place for, for the House so that, you know, the House can actually function again yep. uh, and, uh, and, and to make this a priority. David Dayan is the executive editor of the American Prospect. He is the author of their daily unsanitized column, a must-read, in my opinion. You can uh, get it in your email box, or you can go to prospect.org and read it there, or sign up to have it sent to your email box. You can find him on the Twitters at D Dayan. And yes, he's got a book coming out in about a month called Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power. David Dayan, always good talking with you, my friend. We'll be doing it again soon, I suspect. All right. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Okay. I promised we'd get out with some good news. I think we still have some time to do it because we do need to uh, cheer up after that a little bit. We got to go way out west for it. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. That is way out west, isn't it? (laughs) Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Okay, a new online poll from Montana State University shows Democratic Governor Steve Bullock Leading incumbent GOP Senator Steve Daines in Montana's Senate contest, 46% to 39%. Nice. Right? 
Now, uh, the poll conducted between April 10 and 27 also shows a closer than expected presidential race with Donald Trump apparently leading uh, presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden 45 to 40 percent. Now, that is a state in which Trump won in 2016 by more than 20 points. But that was the same statewide ballot on which Democratic Governor Bullock won that year by about four points. So I know most folks think of Montana as a deep red state. Apparently, it is not, at least not that deep, at least when it comes to their popular Democratic governor who could help flip the Senate to Democrats this November, if people are allowed to vote after all. And yes, we will need the U.S. <laughs> Postal Service for that. Yeah, help. and that's where the question is. Will people be allowed to vote? Will they be allowed to access the ballot box? Will they be allowed to vote by mail and not have to endanger their health to do so? Dunno. But if they can, uh, the with Bullock winning in Montana... That could be pretty huge news. A uh, few Democrats were thinking they were going to be able to flip that Senate seat. They were focused, and they still are, on the more obviously flippable seats in Colorado, Arizona, Maine, North Carolina. So a Bullock win, which we had been calling for, by the way, calling for him to run for Senate back when he insisted on running for president. And he said, I didn't want to run for Senate. Well, now he is, and now he may win, underscoring once again how every vote in Every state is going to matter this year if we want to save our country and our planet. So please take nothing for granted. All right, we got to get out. Yes. Thank you to our <laughs> producer, Desi Doy, and to my guest today, the American Prospects, David Dayan, and to all of you for spending a portion of your valuable time with us. It is always greatly appreciated, and it is an honor. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. That is uh, made available to you as a service by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us on your public airwaves. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Bradblog. That's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I hope. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>